Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, September 21st, 2023. The podcast that separates the facts from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia are reportedly exploring a defense pact. Global debt soars to $307 trillion. Merrick Garland is grilled by a key House committee. Zelensky accuses Russia of genocide at the U.N. General Assembly. Japan calls on China to remove buoys in disputed territorial waters. Six Palestinians are killed in the West Bank and Gaza. The U.N. identifies 1,600 abuse cases of detainees in Taliban custody. A unit of Huawei is reportedly shipping new surveillance camera chips despite U.S. protocols. Donald Trump Jr.'s ex-account is hacked. And a report says over 35 million U.S. homes are, quote, essentially uninsurable from climate change. In our first story, a new report says the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are exploring a defense pact. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The New York Times, Al-Arabia, I-24 News, The Times of Israel, and Kantara. The U.S. is reportedly discussing details of a mutual defense treaty with Saudi Arabia amid a push by the Biden administration to get the kingdom to normalize ties with Israel. The pact, which would reportedly mirror security treaties between the U.S. and its allies, Japan and South Korea, would see Washington and Riyadh pledge military support to each other should one of them come under attack in the region or on Saudi soil. According to U.S. officials, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman considers the potential defense deal an important component for ongoing talks with Washington over Israel and developing a civilian nuclear program. The potential framework was also on U.S. President Joe Biden's agenda for discussions with Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the U.N. General Assembly, where the latter is likely to address the prospect of a U.S.-Israel defense agreement. While the U.S. on Tuesday confirmed that Israeli-Saudi normalization talks are continuing, Saudi officials said a robust U.S.-Saudi defense deal would help prevent potential attacks by Iran or its armed partners, even after the recent diplomatic rapprochement between the two regional rivals. Meanwhile, Riyadh on Wednesday welcomed the positive results of a five-day round of negotiations between the Iran-backed Houthi rebels and Saudi officials on a potential roadmap to bolster the peace process in Yemen. Thank you for those facts, Melissa. I'm going to start off our first round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by the New York Times. Tying a U.S.-Saudi defense pact to normalizing Saudi relations with Israel is an intelligent move by the Biden administration. While Tel Aviv and Riyadh seek security from Iran, the triangular deal would strengthen Washington's grip over critical regional trade routes in its geopolitical struggle with China. While there are still some disagreements between the two countries, the vast potential strategic benefits of a Saudi, Israeli, and security guarantees to Saudi Arabia would make Washington the biggest winner. An establishment critical narrative is provided by the Boston Globe. The days when the Biden administration vowed to make Saudi Arabia an international pariah are long gone. While Washington needs to improve relations with all countries, offering Saudi Arabia a defense pact for purely geostrategic reasons goes too far and could ultimately mean sending U.S. troops to defend the autocratic kingdom. 
offering Riyadh military protection in return for normalizing relations with Israel, billions for the U.S. arms industry, and Shiv oil would completely strip Washington of any moral credibility. And Defense One is going to keep the narrative spinning with a narrative C. Biden is seeking to put U.S.-Saudi ties back on a solid footing to prevent Riyadh from falling to China and stabilize global energy markets. However, a defense pact is not the right tool to advance the normalization of U.S.-Saudi relations. Washington should instead devote its military resources to threats from China and Russia. Meanwhile, Washington and Riyadh should seek deep U.S. involvement in the kingdom's defense reform to address Saudi Arabia's national security concerns and deter Iran. And the nerds will also throw their hat in the ring with this nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. There's a 24% chance that Saudi Arabia will establish diplomatic relations with Israel before January 20th, 2025. Global debt surges to a record $307 trillion. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Bloomberg, The Print, The Telegraph, CNBC, and New York Times. Global debt reached a record $307 trillion in the second quarter of 2023. The Institute for International Finance, or the IIF, said on Tuesday. The group representing the world's largest international banks and financial institutions reported that global debt in dollar terms had risen by $10 trillion in the first half of the year and by $100 trillion over the past decade. According to the IIF, the global debt-to-GDP ratio increased to 336% for a second straight quarter, reportedly due to global inflation spikes, higher borrowing costs, and tighter lending. In its global debt monitor, the IIF said that over 80% of the latest debt buildup had come from developed countries, especially the U.S., Japan, the U.K., and France. Among emerging markets, the most significant rises came from China, India, and Brazil. The report comes ahead of the Federal Reserve's next interest rate decision, due on Wednesday, when the U.S. Central Bank is expected to leave its benchmark rate. Meanwhile, the U.S. gross national debt exceeded $33 trillion for the first time on Monday, amid the pursuit of a heavy borrowing and spending program by the Biden administration. Thank you, Adam, for those facts, and we'll begin with a narrative A from the IMF. Rising debt has been a global concern for a while and has become a more urgent one since the outbreak of the pandemic in 2019. A high debt-to-GDP ratio reduces space for fresh investments as more funds are directed toward debt servicing, which hampers growth. Country-level structural reforms and international cooperation in taxation are required to help ease national finances. That's going to be followed up with a narrative B provided by CNBC. While concerns over rising global debt must be paid heed to, it should also be noted that the effect of debt varies among nations, meaning that adjustment costs can vary. At the macro level, consumer debt remains largely manageable. Central banks have retained some wiggle room, and markets shouldn't be overly spooked. And here's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance that at least 10 countries will have AAA-rated sovereign debt per S&P in 2028. Now, I, I know our listeners can't hear it, but uh, we tend to make mistakes, uh, whatnot, throughout uh, doing the podcast, and we edit it and fix it and stuff. 
I had the hardest time reading this story just because I'm talking about so much money. It made me so nervous. <laughs> I literally could not, I couldn't speak right. It's going to be a late night editing <laughs> because of this story. I, 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 I was stumbling over just over saying $307 trillion. I couldn't. Yeah. You're like, that's a typo. I think that's unreal. Yeah, right. <laughs> Attorney General Garland testifies before the House Judiciary Committee. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Fox News, CNN, CBS, and PBS NewsHour. The GOP-controlled House Judiciary Committee held a hearing on Wednesday for U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, which saw him face accusations of weaponizing the Justice Department in favor of President Joe Biden and his son Hunter. The hearing focused heavily on the DOJ's handling of its investigation and prosecution of Hunter Biden on felony gun charges, with committee chairman Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, claiming Garland and David Weiss, the special counsel leading the Biden investigation, covered for the president's son. Jordan further alleged the DOJ didn't adequately look into Hunter's business dealings with Ukrainian energy company Burisma and noted that the DOJ allowed the statute of limitations to expire before it could investigate Hunter's potential tax crimes. Garland rejected accusations of political bias, saying that he's not the president's lawyer nor Congress's prosecutor. He maintained that the DOJ is a politically independent department and that he hasn't interfered in the Hunter Biden case. House Republicans also alleged Garland has targeted former President Donald Trump, who has been indicted in two federal cases by special counsel Jack Smith, accusations the attorney general also denied, saying no one told him to indict Trump. This comes as House Republicans are pursuing an impeachment inquiry into Biden, with a hearing reportedly due to be held on September 28th. Thank you, Melissa. As you can imagine, we've got some politically motivated spins for this story. A Republican narrative provided by Daily Caller. There's little doubt that Merrick Garland and the DOJ are in the tank for Joe Biden, while Trump gets hit with indictment after indictment on the flimsiest charges. Garland's DOJ ignores Hunter Biden's corruption and treats his criminal investigation with children's gloves. Garland must answer for his bias. Here's the Democratic narrative from The Guardian. House Republicans are creating a spectacle by slandering Garland and questioning the legitimacy of the American justice system. Rather than eroding public trust, this time would be better spent addressing the real problems that Congress faces, such as funding the government ahead of the impending shutdown. It's time to move on. And the Metaculous Prediction community is going to stop the spin with a nerd narrative. They say that there's a 10% chance that Merrick Garland will be impeached before the 2024 federal election. You know, children's gloves are not easy to find. Not li not like they used to be because it's because the government's using them all right now. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, when COVID started, they're like, please do not buy up all of the masks. Right. They're, they're, they've they've let, the, let the trained professionals use them. That's the same with the kid gloves, the kid gloves. It's important to have first responders in the White House. That's right. Need. They've got to treat everything with kid gloves nowadays. That's why I can't find any. Man, winters are right around the corner. Well, we'll start doing like what we did during COVID and you just kind of, we'll, we'll get Get a group of uh, mothers together and they'll just start knitting kid gloves. I thought you were going to say just wrap rolls of toilet paper around their hands. <laughs> That'll work too. <laughs> Zelensky accuses Russia of genocide, urges unity against Russian aggression. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Associated Press, TASS, and Guardian. Making his first in-person speech at the U.N. General Assembly in New York on Tuesday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of committing genocide and called on world leaders to unite against Russian aggression. Zelensky accused Russia of weaponizing energy and food security and kidnapping tens of thousands of children from occupied territory in Ukraine. Zelensky said, We know the names of tens of thousands of children and have evidence on hundreds of thousands of others kidnapped by Russia in the occupied territories of Ukraine and later deported. He added, International Criminal Court has issued arrest warrant for Russian President Putin for his crime. This is clearly a genocide. These remarks came as Ukrainian lawyers have this week urged judges at the International Court of Justice in the Netherlands to make the same classification of genocide, though a panel has yet to rule on whether the case can proceed. If it does, a final ruling could still be years away. Meanwhile, Russia has argued that children were not abducted, but rather evacuated from war zones with the consent of their parents and in line with international humanitarian law. It said that, in a minority of cases, orphans were transferred to Russia and placed with guardians, but said this was only a temporary measure. Elsewhere in his speech, Zelensky called on world leaders to attend a Ukraine-led peace summit to end the war, further details of which he said he would announce on Wednesday. He said that the Ukrainian plan, which involves a Russian withdrawal from Ukrainian territory, accountability for war crimes, and restitution for damages, represented a real chance to end aggression in the terms of the nation which was attacked. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins. We'll begin with a pro-Ukrainian narrative from the European Pravda. Russia's imperial war against Ukraine is an attempt to deny Ukraine of its existence and wipe it off the face of the map. This has been repeatedly shown in Russia's deliberate attacks on civilians and energy infrastructure, as well as its abduction of tens of thousands of children. This is clearly genocide. And Politico is going to back that up with a narrative B. While Russia can rightly be accused of many things in Ukraine, including starting the war and committing war crimes, there's no evidence to support the statement that it's deliberately trying to exterminate the people of Ukraine. The crime of genocide is the most serious violation of international law, and we risk watering it down if we start playing fast and loose with the term. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 1% chance that Russia will be removed from the UN Security Council by 2024. Japan calls on China to remove a buoy near disputed islands. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Straits, Time, and The Standard. Japan has called on the Chinese government to remove a buoy it claims it found floating in the waters of its exclusive economic zone, or EEZ, of the Senkaku Islands, known by China as the Diaoyu Islands. A Japanese foreign ministry official said that they have been lodging protests in both Tokyo and Beijing since Japan's Coast Guard in July found a buoy adding that they have demanded the immediate removal of the buoy as it is against international laws. The uninhabited islands and rocks are located roughly 190 nautical miles south of Okinawa, Japan, and have been controlled by the country since 1895. However, they are also claimed by Taiwan. Under UN rules, the EEZ can extend as far out as 200 nautical miles. 
This follows a 2018 incident in which China allegedly put a buoy in the same area of the East China Sea, as well as rising tensions since Tokyo released treated wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear plant on August 24th, prompting Beijing to bar all seafood imports from Japan. Food exports between the two countries declined 41.2% in August. In the same month, a brick was thrown through the Japanese embassy in China, prompting Tokyo to urge Beijing to protect its citizens. The embassy has also reportedly received over 400,000 nuisance calls since the water release. In response to the rising tensions, Tokyo has increased security at schools and diplomatic missions, as well as called on its citizens in China to keep a low profile. Thanks for the facts there, Melissa. We're going to start our spins with an anti-China narrative provided by Air University. The Senkaku Islands have been under the official possession of Japan for over a century, beginning with their annexation after the First Sino-Japanese War and again following World War II. Beijing is now using its economic and military power to impede this region. Japan must work with the U.S. to prepare responses should the CCP attempt to escalate these imperialistic maneuvers. The pro-China narrative comes from the Global Times. Just two decades ago, Tokyo was prioritizing regional stability and friendship with Beijing. But since it began partnering with the U.S. and South Korea, it's chosen economic and military hostility instead. Japan is well aware of its cultural and economic ties to China, which is why, hopefully, it will retrace its steps and return to focusing on fostering diplomacy and stability, rather than supporting the goals of the West. If you do see, um, you know, some bottled water coming up into your Safeway called Fukushima water, don't buy it. Don't buy it. What's really good about it, it's perfect for having, you know, I like to keep a bottle of water next to my bed at night. Mm. Uh, This this Fukushima water, it glows in the dark, so you can always find it. Double useful product. It's right there. Unparts your throat. And see, uh, don't stub your toe on the bedside. Yeah, you, you don't have to. You're not groping around, knocking stuff over, turning on the light, waking up everybody. Water glows in the dark. Yeah, you don't have to buy a nightlight. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, I mean, I guess you would glow in the dark too. So, um, bonus on that when you got to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, don't need to turn the light on. <laughs> Six Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces in West Bank and in Gaza. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, The National, The Times of Israel, France 24, and Al Monitor. Palestinian health officials said on Wednesday that six Palestinians had been killed in the last 24 hours after Israeli troops conducted raids in the West Bank and confronted demonstrators in Gaza. At least three of those killed were claimed as Palestinian fighters. Israeli forces entered the refugee camp of Janine to conduct a short raid Tuesday night, wounding dozens and killing four. Israeli forces also conducted a raid into the Aquabat Jabbar refugee camp in Jericho, killing one. The Israeli military also claimed that its troops had launched an operation in Hebron and numerous other Palestinian towns, arresting 12 suspects and seizing numerous weapons and ammunition. A raid in Quintana, outside Jerusalem, led to light clashes with the town's residents, who reportedly threw bricks and shot fireworks at Israeli forces. Israeli's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, said that the raids were necessary to thwart terrorist activities, while Janine's director of the Palestinian Red Crescent reported that clashes impeded rescuers' access to the site of the violence. Janine's deputy governor said the Israeli army had targeted a house 
used as a hideout by a wanted Palestinian. Unrest in Gaza has recently surged, with Palestinians in the embargo strip throwing rocks and explosives at Israeli troops guarding the border fence, who had responded with tear gas and gunfire. One demonstrator was reportedly shot and killed by Israeli forces on Tuesday. The situation in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza has deteriorated in the last year as Israel, following a spree of Palestinian attacks last spring, has launched regular raids. According to the Associated Press, around 190 Palestinians have been killed this year in the West Bank, while Palestinian attacks targeting Israelis have killed at least 31. Thank you, Adam, and we'll begin this round of spins with a pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Eye. Israeli incursions are only meant to provoke Palestinian residents who are growing increasingly frustrated with the daily brutality of the occupation under which they live. The goal of these raids is to terrorize the Palestinian population and to make sure that nowhere is safe. In addition to this, Israel has blocked one of the only official entrances into Gaza, worsening an already dire humanitarian situation. And that's going to be countered with a pro-Israel story provided by Jerusalem Post. Israel only launches these raids to prevent Palestinian terror attacks against Israeli civilians. The Israeli military does everything it can to avoid civilian casualties, but Israeli forces have been forced to use live ammunition after being attacked or fired upon by Palestinian militants. As terrorist groups like Hamas openly threaten attacks on Tel Aviv, Israeli forces will remain vigilant. The UN identifies 1,600 abuse cases of detainees in Taliban custody. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Associated Press, the Toronto Star, and the Independent. A UN report released Wednesday claims that over 1,600 incidents of rights violations against those detained by the Taliban in Afghanistan were recorded in the 19 months leading up to the end of July 2023. The UN Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, or UNAMA, has claimed that abuses occurred across 29 of the 34 Afghan provinces, with nearly 60% of the violations committed by Afghanistan's General Directorate of Intelligence. The report further cites 18 deaths while in custody and nearly half of the alleged violations detailed as torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment. Approximately 1 in 10 of the incidents were against women and nearly 25% were against journalists, according to the UN. Examples of torture techniques included beatings, electric shocks, water torture, and numerous other forms of cruel and degrading treatment, according to UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Volker Turk. Rosa Otunbayeva, the UN Secretary General's Special Representative to Afghanistan, acknowledged that there were encouraging signs of the Taliban engaging constructively with UNAMA, such as allowing prison visits, while demanding that urgent, accelerated action is still needed. In response to the report, Afghanistan's foreign ministry disputed its accuracy and said steps had been made to improve conditions for detainees while reaffirming that Sharia law prohibits torture. Thank you, Melissa. The spins are going to start with an establishment-critical narrative provided by Times Now. This inflammatory report is inaccurate and only serves to paint the Taliban in a negative light. Torture and forced confessions are already prohibited and authorities are investigating any violations. 
it's vital that the UN, rather than listening to the rumors of those who wish to sow discord, engage in real dialogue with the Islamic Emirate as it continues to work toward peace and security. And the pro-establishment narrative is from iNews. The Taliban's definition of necessary security and stability is one that engages in gross human rights violations against women, minorities, and dissidents. Its presence in the global community is a danger to us all, and UNAMA must continue to spend more time with the Afghan people rather than the de facto authorities and work to expose the truth of the oppression currently going unchecked. And there's a nerd narrative that says there's a 47% chance that Taliban-controlled Afghanistan will be used as a base for anti-NATO terrorism by 2026. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. A unit of Huawei is reportedly shipping new surveillance camera chips despite U.S. protocols. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Guardian, Yahoo Finance, XM, and the Economic Times. A unit of Chinese tech giant Huawei Technologies is reportedly shipping new Chinese-made chips for surveillance cameras, as the company finds ways around four years of U.S. export controls that have blocked its access to American technology. Chinese advances in semiconductor production has caused a leading association of manufacturers to accuse Huawei of building a collection of secret chip-making facilities under different company names, enabling the company to indirectly purchase American chip-making equipment. The report states that shipments to surveillance camera manufacturers from High Silicon, a chip design unit of Huawei Technologies Company Limited, began earlier this year and that it appears Huawei worked around U.S. sanctions in March by producing chips at and above 14 nanometers, two of three generations behind leading-edge technology. Analysts say Huawei recently launched new smartphones with advanced PRC-made chips, representing a breakthrough for the tech giant. The company's return to the smartphone market was celebrated in late August, when Huawei released the Mate 60 Pro, which uses such an advanced chip and is capable of 5G speeds. Tech Insights, a research firm that examined the Mate 60 Pro, determined it was powered by a new Kirin 9000S chip. The advanced component was most likely made in China by Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corp. Thank you, Adam, for those facts. And this round of spin starts with a pro-China narrative from the print. The launch of Huawei's new smartphone, powered by a cutting-edge new chip, is a game-changer that has spurred pride in China. It underscores the country's capability to produce advanced semiconductor chips, despite U.S.-imposed restrictions. And that's going to be opposed by an anti-China narrative provided by XM. Huawei and SMIC appear to have access to sophisticated tools they shouldn't have under current U.S. government restrictions. The U.S. must put additional pressure on these companies by placing additional export controls on them. Donald Trump Jr.'s X account is hacked. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, The Evening Standard, and The New York Post. Donald Trump Jr.'s account on X, formerly known as Twitter, was hacked on Wednesday morning. Numerous posts with false information were published to his 10.4 million followers. One of the untrue posts announced the death of his father, former U.S. President Donald Trump, and claimed that Trump Jr. would be running for president in 2024. 
Other posts included messages like North Korea is about to get smoked and inflammatory comments about President Joe Biden, Jeffrey Epstein, and influencer Richard Hart. The posts were deleted from the account within an hour. A spokesperson confirmed the hacking. The hack comes after Elon Musk, owner of X, promised to improve the platform's security and clamp down on scam accounts with a new verification system. It's not clear whether Trump Jr. had additional security features like two-factor authentication enabled or whether the hacker accessed his private messages. Thank you, Melissa. We're going to start the spins with a narrative A provided by CNN. The mess of security on X and high-profile hacks impact us all, even those whose accounts aren't hacked. The platform and the free flow of accurate information are essential to democracy. Misinformation can spread like wildfire on social media, and negligence around security on X endangers both user security and national security, especially ahead of the upcoming election. And X brings us Narrative B. X is working to combat manipulation and hacking with new security measures and rules. There's a fine balance between fighting harmful content and censoring political debate, though. The work is ongoing, and X is doing what it can to ensure accurate and safe political discourse. I love the wrap-up on that story. It's like Trump Jr. called uh, uh, X and said, hey, hey, my, my, my account's been hacked. And his, the response was like, well, did you have the two-factor authentication set up? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I noticed if that. If you did, this wouldn't have happened. Did you unplug the router, wait 30 seconds, and plug it back in again? Oh, duh, that's exactly <laughs> what it was. Sorry. Eric, unplug the router! (laughs) In a recent climate report, 35 million U.S. homes will be essentially uninsurable. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, Grist, and Associated Press. In a report by First Street Foundation, a nonprofit that studies climate risks, 35.6 million properties, or one quarter of all U.S. real estate, face increasing insurance prices and reduced coverage due to potential future climate impacts. The higher costs will also devalue these properties. Head of Climate Implications at First Street, Jeremy Porter, said, there's this climate insurance bubble out there, and you can quantify it. The research shows that some parts of California are becoming essentially uninsurable due to wildfire risk. Extreme weather risks plague homes in other states throughout the U.S., According to the report, states such as California, Florida, and Louisiana could see the most significant increases in premiums. The Lujaina-Maui-Hawaii wildfire and the Vermont floods from this past summer could be a harbinger of future events, according to the analysis. First Street CEO Matthew Ebby said, You're talking about getting a letter in the mail that says somewhere between 60% and mid-80% increases for policies. Those homes are not something that you would invest in. Thank you, Adam, for the facts on that final story, and we'll start with Narrative A from First Street. The U.S. is in the midst of a climate insurance bubble, with 39 million properties at high risk of flooding, wildfires, or hurricane winds. Millions of properties have such high risk that no insurance company will provide them coverage, or it will drive the insurance premiums sky high. This affects homeowners, but state and local governments must play their part in enacting comprehensive climate resilience strategies. That's going to be followed up with a narrative B by Forbes. Climate change is a 50-state problem, 
It's not just a problem for homeowners in California, Florida, Texas, Colorado, Louisiana, and New York. Insurance companies must reassess their risk tolerance as climate change leads to more common and severe extreme weather events. The industry needs to fundamentally change how it views risk and accept that the risk that we assumed was normal 20 years ago is not the same risk today, nor will it be 10 or 20 years from now. Homeowners and communities must take their own proactive precautions as well. And here's the final nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance that the total damage incurred by climate change in the 21st century, as measured by its impact on GDP, will be at least 10.98%. I mean, you have to, you have to have home insurance if you own a home. Well, you 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 have to have it if you have a mortgage on your home. Right. I mean, if you've if you've completely paid off your home, you don't have to have insurance on it, right? Oh, that's something I didn't think about actually. You would need to have some sort of comprehensive home insurance like if someone hurts themselves on your property. Yeah. But no, yeah, it's but it's you can't even like, you know, in a flood, you're like, "Oh, go to the high ground. Can't go to the high ground anymore. High ground's catching fire." Let's all live on boats. Ooh, hey, I think you're onto something there. Well, that's, maybe that's what you do. Just get a floating house. The insurance companies might really like that. Your house has the ability to rise like a buoy if it floods, and then it just kind of sinks back down. Don't park it near that island in Japan, though. They, they got a thing about buoys. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, September 21st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and then the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.